Welcome to the Valley Point Podcast. Valley Point Church is a faith community located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Our mission is pointing people to real relationships and real significance. This week continues our series, The Story. Enjoy and thanks for listening. Today in the story, we're going to find ourselves in the book of Esther, and so if you have a Bible or a device, I would like for you to find Esther chapter 1, and I'm going to be providing an overview of her incredible and remarkable story today, so I hope that you'll listen fast and pay attention, but we're going to begin in Esther chapter 1. While you're finding that, I want to let you know that next Sunday is March 13th. It's also known as Time Change Sunday. So we're going to spring ahead, and that means everybody loses an hour of sleep. Yay for losing an hour of sleep, right? That's great. Well, regardless of how you're feeling next week, whether you're awake or not, it's going to be a fantastic Sunday here at Valley Point Church. Let me tell you why. We actually conclude our Old Testament portion of the story. And I'm so proud of us as a church because we have taken 21 weeks to look at key events and key individuals in a chronological order. And I hope that this has been very beneficial to you. But we wrap all of that up next week before we begin then our journey through the New Testament portion of the story. So to help us with that next week, we have a special guest speaker coming. Her name is Bethany Cook. She has been here in the past, and she's excited about being back at Valley Point to walk through the book and the life of Nehemiah. So that's how we wrap up the Old Testament next week, and I hope that you'll be here regardless of how much sleep you've had the night before. But today, it's Queen Esther. And she is just an incredibly influential and courageous person in the story. Here's our upper story statement, or the big idea of what God is doing. And that is, God is still working even when we cannot see his plan. Because God is constantly working, I can trust him. God is still working. All of the time, even when we cannot see his plan, because God is constantly at work, I can trust him. Now, here's the problem with that upper story statement. And there is a problem there. Because we talk about how God does some stuff for us, and that's great. And as a result of what he does for us, we can trust him. That all sounds great and wonderful, but there is a problem with this upper story statement. And the problem is this, that is very painful because it means that I have to be patient with God and I have to wait for him to work and to do what he wants to accomplish in my life. I've got to be patient in the process. I've got to wait for him to work and nobody likes being patient. So this is kind of a painful upper story statement. Let me ask you this. Do you ever get tired of waiting on God to show up for you? And you're like, God, here's my problem. Here's the issue. And are you going to appear 
for me? Or have you ever sensed, it? does God actually see my hurt and my pain? And maybe you're very aware that God sees the hurts and the pains of others, and you've watched him do that, and you've seen how people respond to that. But when it comes to you personally, have you ever wondered if God actually sees your hurt and your pain? I think we've all been there at times, and I will say it can be very difficult to wait on God. Very difficult, painful. Let me give you a modern-day illustration that I think all of us can understand. As a church, we have a desire and a goal to build a real home. We're meeting in a school. This is not our property. Less than a mile down the road, we have approximately seven acres. That's the Bethel Road campus, and we have been in the process of putting together a plan to build a real home there where we can continue to respond to the greatness of God. I think this is exactly what God wants for us. It's the next right step for us as a church. It's a good thing. It's a great dream and a wonderful desire that we have. Nothing selfish about it at all. We want to build something permanent so that future generations can just continue to be a part of Valley Point Church. It's a great thing. It really is. We started this process in 2014. Initial vision casting actually began in 2013. It's 2016. So how long does it take? How long? Well, here's the short answer to that. It takes as long as God wants it to take so that God can accomplish what he wants. And here's the beautiful thing about this. It's somewhat humbling, but it's also beautiful. God doesn't need my help in the process. He really doesn't. Now, God wants me to be involved in the journey, and here's how he asks me, and here's how he asks all of us to be involved in this process. It's simply that he wants us to trust in him that he is constantly at work. Even when we don't get it, and even when we can't see, and even when there are delays, and even when there are seasons of doubt, God invites all of us to be a part of the process in trusting him that he's just constantly at work. You know, God's been at work in our journey of finding the perfect solution, and not just a good solution, but the perfect solution for our water and our sewer needs on that property and the rest of the infrastructure. And it is a solution that we never could have imagined. Like, we wouldn't have done it that way. But yet God was at work, even when we couldn't see. God was at work giving us favor with the officials and the decision makers, even when we couldn't see any of that. God has been at work in the delays, and God is just constantly working. And this is one of the things that really comes to life in the story of Esther. Even when things look really dark, and even when it's pretty dismal in terms of Esther's view of life and what is happening to and for her, God is constantly working. So let me share some fun facts with you about the book of Esther. Do you like fun facts? All right, here's fun fact number one. The story of Esther's life fits somewhere between Ezra chapter 6 and 7. So it fits nicely into our timeline here. 
We talked about Ezra last week and how God sent some individuals back to rebuild the altar and to start the process of rebuilding the temple. Esther and her story and her life fits nicely into our timeline. Secondly, the book of Esther is unique in that God's name is never mentioned, which makes it kind of fascinating. Because how does a book get in the Bible that doesn't mention God when it's his story? How does that even happen? Well, when you walk through the different chapters, and we'll do this in just a moment, and we begin to see what's happening in Esther's life, there's no doubt that the hand of God's providence and protection is on his people. And it's a remarkable thing to see. So even though God isn't mentioned in the book, he is very active. He's behind the scenes doing things. And ultimately, this is why we can trust him. Thirdly, we don't know who authored this book. We just don't know. It's not Esther. Some scholars believe it may have been Ezra or Nehemiah who put this book together, but the structure of the book doesn't really fit their style. Other scholars believe it may have been a younger contemporary of Mordecai who was Esther's cousin, and I'll introduce you to him in just a moment. But ultimately, we don't know who wrote the book. We just know God put it in the Bible so that we could benefit from her incredible life and story. And then finally, Esther was addressed to the many Jews who did not return to their homeland. And that's who it is written for. Last week I talked to you about how approximately 50,000 exiles returned to rebuild the temple. And that was an amazing thing for them to do. But not all of the Jews left. Not all of them returned to their homeland. Esther stayed Mordecai and a host of others. And so the book of Esther is written specifically to those who remained. They did not return to their homeland. All right, let's jump into the lower story then. And I want to begin with chapter 1 and verse 5. We're picking up on some real historical events here. Here's what it says. The king, and we'll find out his name in just a moment. The king, the ruler over all of the land, gave a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. And so we know where this is going, don't we? You can see it. Verse 9. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So there's our guy. That's his name. It's King Xerxes. Queen Vashti, he's throwing a wild party. She's having her own banquet. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine. Now let's pause there for a moment because that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's kind of a sophisticated way of saying, he's toast. He is. And I I actually did some research on this phrase about King Xerxes being high in spirits. And the construction of the language means he was done well. (laughs) He was cooked. And so we could read it this way. 
when King Xerxes was done well with wine, things get very interesting. Here's what he did. He told the seven eunuchs who attended him, bring Queen Vashti to me and put the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's orders to Queen Vashti, she's like, oh no, I'm not playing that game. I'm not going to do that. And she refused to come. And this made the king furious, and he burned with anger. So here's what happens next in the story. Queen Vashti gets fired. She refuses to come, and the king says, that's a tremendous embarrassment to me. I can't have my queen doing that, so I'm just going to dismiss her from the palace. And they took her and all of her belongings, and out the door she went. Queen Vashti, no longer the queen. And what King Xerxes does at that point is he says, I want to establish a beauty competition to find the next most beautiful woman in all of the land. And so that's what he does. And there's a beauty competition that takes place, and that's where Esther enters the story. She's part of this beauty competition. Not only is she part of it, she actually wins the competition, and she becomes the next queen. That's Xerxes and Esther. Great story, eh? It really is. Now, while that's happening, there are two other individuals that I need to introduce you to that help kind of carry the story forward. There's Mordecai, and then there's Haman. Let's think about these two individuals. Mordecai, great guy. Just an upstanding man, full of integrity. Mordecai, he's one of the good guys. He's actually Esther's cousin, and Scripture tells us that he's a bit older than Esther, and when her parents passed... He actually took it upon himself to bring her into his home and raise her as a daughter. And so that's what he does. He's just a great man. Well, in time, he becomes a palace official. He's got a pretty important job. And as he's going about his responsibilities, he uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. Like there are some individuals who want to take out the king. And because Mordecai's a guy full of integrity and he's upright, he's just a great guy, he's like, I can't have that happen to the king. And so he goes to Queen Esther and says, Esther, you got to talk to the king and let him know that there are individuals who want to assassinate him. And Esther agreed, that's a great idea. And so she took that information to the king and gave credit to Mordecai and the king's life was spared. That's Mordecai. Again, just a great guy. Now, let's think about Haman. Haman, not a nice guy. Uh, He's just not nice at all. He's narcissistic and prideful and filled with hate and rage. But he is also the king's second-hand man, so he's pretty powerful. One of the things that Esther tells us that Haman did is he was so full of himself that he would actually demand as he walked about in the kingdom that people would bow down to him. Now here comes Haman. 
He's got a really important job. He's the king's second-hand man. We've got to bow down to Haman. That's what he wants, and that's what he's asked for, so let's just do this. And everybody was okay with that because that's just the way it worked. And so all of these people are just bowing down to this hateful, narcissistic individual. Everyone but, can you guess who? Yeah, Mordecai. He just can't handle it, and he's tired of this individual And he just is not for bowing down to Haman. Well, of course, this infuriates Haman. And here's what we read in Esther chapter 3. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage and it bothered him. And then he had learned of Mordecai's nationality. So he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. We're talking about a genocide here. So, in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast. Basically, he rolled the dice in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim. I want you to remember that word because we're going to come back to it in just a moment. Lots, Purim, dice. And Haman rolls the dice. He rolls the Purim in order to find the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. So he rolls the dice to see which day to take out all of the Jews. What I did not mention about Esther and Mordecai is that they are Jews. And for whatever reason, they have chosen to keep that fact hidden from others. And now all of a sudden, they find themselves in a lot of trouble, as you can imagine. And so Mordecai comes to Esther and begs for her to take action. Esther, you've got to do something about this. We're about to be wiped out. We are about to be destroyed. And you've got to go before the king. And you've got to beg for our people. You've got to beg for our lives. That's exactly what you have to do. But there was some tension in that moment because Esther replied and said, I can't do that. I can't just barge in before the king. I know I'm the queen, but that's not the law of the land. I can't go in without him requesting my presence. If I do that, I'm breaking the law and I may be killed. I just can't do this. And so there is some back and forth between Mordecai and Esther and what they should do. And here's what we read about that in Esther chapter 4. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Isn't that a great line? Mordecai looks at her and says, perhaps this is what God has been doing. And things are dark, And it doesn't look great right now for us and for our people, but perhaps God has been working all of the time, placing you exactly where you are today for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. 
Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. We have to wonder in all of this, where's God? Doesn't he seem to be concerned at all that his people are in dire trouble? Does God not care? Does God not see? Is God not listening? Well, what we learn from Esther is that God is constantly working. And because he is constantly working, I can trust him. And I want to say this as well. There is something about prayer, fervent prayer, that moves the heart of God, that just causes him to spring into action. And that's what happens here. Esther actuates a prayer movement and things begin to change. So what happens next? Esther approaches the king. And even though it's against the law, and even though it might cost her her life, she determines, perhaps this is what God made me for. And so she approaches the king, and the king accepts her. It's a great moment. And he asks, Esther, what is it that you need? What is it that you want? And she looks at the king and she says, I'd like to prepare a banquet for you and for Haman, your right-hand man. I want you to come and let's have a great time together. Well, what we know about King Xerxes is he loved to eat and drink, perhaps especially drink. And so he's all about another party. He agrees to come. And so the king and Haman appear at the banquet that Esther prepares for them. And Esther has another request. She looks at them and says, I want yous to come back for another banquet. And of course, Esther said yous. That's what she said. I want you guys to come back one more time for another banquet. And both the king and Haman agreed to that. Well, in the meantime, Haman is thrilled. I mean, you got to know, he is really happy about what is happening here because he is hanging out with the king and the queen. He is with the power people. And of course, all of that just continues to go to his head. And scripture tells us that he walks out of that meeting where they are invited once again to another party. And he goes out and walks around and people are bowing down to him because that's what they were supposed to do. But then he finds Mordecai. And Mordecai, once again, refuses to bow down to Haman. Well, this infuriates him so much. After having a great party with the king and the queen, he is so upset about this that he goes home and he talks to his wife. And his wife says, you got to do something about that Mordecai. He's embarrassing you. And so together, the two of them come up with this plan where they will build a 75-foot sharpened pole on which they will basically shish kebab Mordecai. They're going to stick him on the pole. Brutal. And that's kind of how they performed executions back in the day. And so they begin the process of constructing this gigantic pole in order to kill Mordecai. Well, it's about this time that you're thinking, things are not going well for Mordecai and Esther and their people. I mean, this is not good. 
What happens? Well, that night, the king, he can't sleep. I want to point out once again, God is constantly working, even when we cannot see his plan. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the king couldn't sleep that night. I think God stirred something in him. He awakes and he calls in some palace officials and he says, I want you to go and get the history books and read them to me. Because history books put everybody back to sleep, right? That's what they do. And so they bring in the history books and they begin to read the different accounts of things that happened in the kingdom. And he hears the story of Mordecai saving his life, uncovering this assassination plot. And he stops the readers and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Have we ever done anything to honor that individual? That's a great thing. He saved my life. Have we ever honored him? And they look in the history books, and it would appear that there was nothing done to honor Mordecai for saving the king's life. And so the king says, well, we need to do something about that. And he brings in Haman. He says, Haman, there is somebody really important that we need to honor in the kingdom. What would you suggest we do for that person? Well, of course, Haman, he's really excited about this. Like, today is my day. Finally, the king's going to honor me for all of the work. And so, king, get a pen and sit down and write all of this down because here's what you need to do to honor a really important person. Like, this would be a wonderful idea. So write all this down. King, you need to get one of your royal robes, one of the robes that only you wear, and put it on this individual. And then after that, I want you to put that individual on one of your royal horses. And so they've got the royal robe and the royal horse. And then I want you to parade them around Center City so that everybody will know that is an important person. And we need to honor them because they've got the king's robe and the king's horse. And then Haman probably said, King, here's something else I want you to do. On top of City Hall, William Penn, take him down. And put up a figure of this individual, and then everybody will know between William Penn not being there and between the royal robe and the royal horse, this is a person that is to be honored. You can read all of this in Esther chapter 6, minus the William Penn part, of course. So the king looks at Haman and says, that is a wonderful idea. I absolutely love it. I want you to put all of that in action for Mordecai the Jew. Well, you can just begin to see the color drain from Haman's face, right? Like this is just an amazing story. So what happens next? Well, it's time for the second banquet that Esther was preparing for the king and for Haman. So they come in and she gets everything ready. And in the process, the king asks her, Esther, what is it that you want? And what do you really want? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. I mean, he was ready. So Queen Esther replied in verse 3 of chapter 7, If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. Who would do such a thing? King Xerxes demanded. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. 
Well, Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage, and he went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with the queen, Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden. Haman's having a bad day here. (laughs) This is a bad day. So the king exclaimed, Will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? As soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided, and everyone in the kingdom got the point. Ah! Just wanted to be sure you're still with me, still awake. So think about this for a moment. God's people delivered. Delivered. Like God came through. It's absolutely remarkable when you think about how dark this actually looked. But yet, what we know is that God is always working. And because God is always working, even when I can't see it, and even when I may not believe it, as a result of that, I can trust in him. God delivered. It's a tremendous story, isn't it? One of the things that happens as a result of this is there is a new celebration established for Esther and her people. It's called the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim will actually be celebrated by Jewish people all over the world during this month, the month of March. That's when these events happened. And it's a time of feasting and celebrating and reading the story of Esther again so that they can be reminded about the day of the rolling of the dice. Now, God delivered, God saved, and God came through when things didn't look so good. But God is always working. It's always working. Because of that, I can trust in him. So what do we do with all of this? What about your story and my story? How do we apply this? I want to ask two questions just to get us all thinking about the story of Esther and what happened and what we can walk away with thinking about today. Here's the first question. When is the last time... I prayed fervently over the current obstacles and challenges in my life. When's the last time? And I'm not talking about a casual, God help me, fix this, adjust this. Those prayers are okay too. I'm talking about a cry or a dark night of the soul where we're broken and confused We just don't get what God is up to because we can't see it. So when's the last time that you fervently or really cried out over a challenge or an obstacle in your life? One of the great things about Esther is before she did anything at all, and keep in mind, she is fairly influential 
And she was well-liked by the king. But even with that, before she acted in any way, she took time to pray for herself and ask her people to do the same. Before any activity, before any approaching of the king to rescue people, she stopped and she fervently prayed. Three days. They're not eating. They're not doing anything at all. Because this is kind of a big deal. Our lives are at stake. When's the last time? You fervently really cried out over a challenge, over an obstacle in your life. As a church, we've been walking through this process of a future real home. And how long? How long? Well, again, as long as God wants it to take to accomplish what he wants to do. One of the things that I have loved about what we've done is that we have tried to bathe this whole real home process in prayer. And there have been key moments where we've asked people to specifically lift up the project. A few weeks ago, many of you took a 10-minute time frame just to pray over that meeting we were having that was very important. And yes, we've had a plan. Yes, we're trying to save. Yes, we're designing. But I think underneath it all, we're praying fervently for a challenge and for an obstacle. And God is meeting us. And this is what we see in Esther. God is constantly working, but that doesn't excuse us from fervently lifting up challenges and obstacles. When's the last time? Secondly, do I trust God enough to do something courageous with my life? Do I? I think sometimes we don't accomplish courageous things simply because we don't trust God. And because we don't trust, we never step, we never go, we never serve, we never love, and then we wonder why our lives sometimes feel anemic and weak and we aren't doing everything we sense we're designed to do. What if your greatest fear or your heaviest burden has been given to you for such a time as this. Maybe God wants you to start something or stop something or repair something. Don't underestimate the courage that that takes. Maybe God has been bringing all these things into your life that sometimes you question and you doubt and you don't like for such a time as this, think of Esther and her willingness to take a chance and to courageously stand before the king. I think all of that happened because she fervently prayed and then she sensed that God is at work. And I can trust, I can trust. God is working even when I can't see his plan because he is constantly working. I can trust him. Father, we're thankful for the story of Esther. She's an amazing woman. And her story is here in Scripture to remind us of how you are working. And because you're constantly working, you can be trusted. God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to walk away from today asking and answering these questions so that we can get a sense 
of what you want next for us. God, I pray that you give each and every person in here courage to be obedient to you and to sense that maybe we have been created for this obstacle or challenge in front of us. And if we fervently pray and if we trust that you're at work, even when we can't see it, that you have the ability to accomplish the impossible in and through us. We're so thankful for this amazing story. Bless us now. Bless us as we take this and use it in our lives. And we pray all of this in the great name of our incredible God. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. We'd also love to have you join us on any Sunday morning as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 9.15 or 11 a.m.